<clears throat> Amen. And we're going to finish now tonight. We're going to finish the Song of Solomon. And uh, it's been a great, I've never taught it before. It's been an experience for me. But I have lo grown to love this book, the Song of Solomon. Now, we're going to pray, but remember, well, let's pray first. Father, we thank you right now for the blessing of God on this uh, message, this teaching. And Lord, that you have given us this book. The Holy Spirit inspired it. The Holy Spirit directed it as a message for Christ's bride and Christ the shepherd. We pray that tonight, as we wrap this up, Lord, our walk with you will be closer than it's ever been before. We thank you. Can you breathe a prayer? That's what this book's all about. Breathe a prayer and say, Lord, draw me close. I want you to look right up with your eye of faith. Look right up into heaven and say, Lord, I desire you. Draw me close. Help me to come to know you in ways I never have. Increase my walk. Enrich my fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and say, he is worth your worship. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Now, I want to remind you, um, I've done this every week in these 10 weeks. It's been t this is the 10th week that we've been in this. Uh, but that's pretty good time. This was eight chapters, and it's not, um, not an easy book to teach. Um, but I want to remind you of, of who the characters are. And there's a couple of new characters. Uh, they're going to pop in tonight, and uh, we're going to meet. But remember that, of course, there's the, the shepherd who represents the great shepherd. This book is all about Christ and the church. This book is all about, it's a picture of Jesus and you, Jesus and me. It's a picture of our walk with him and the battles we experience in our endeavors to walk with him. So you have, you have the shepherd who is the great shepherd. Then you had the Shulamite. The Shulamite is us. The Shulamite was just minding her own business one day when some of Solomon's men came and under his direction, because he had cast a lustful eye on her, she's a very beautiful woman, <clears throat> um, they kidnapped her, took her away, took her to Solomon's pavilion where he intended to make her one of his harem. And so the book is all about her standing strong in the presence of all of his temptations and machinations and the different ways he tried to seduce her away from the shepherd to himself. Now that happens with you and I every single day in this wicked, depraved world in which we live. It's a battle every day in our minds to leave the shepherd and drift towards the world. All right? And, and so that's the picture. Well, she won the battle. And she had some intense battle, but she won. Now, tonight we're going to look at an hour of triumph, and it's almost time to bring the story to a close. And like most good stories, it does have a happy ending. Thank God. I don't like bad endings. I know. I don't like movies that end bad. You can have them. I want to walk out smiling and feeling good. Well, this ends well. We ended last time 
with the Shulamite charging the women of Solomon's court who are a picture of just worldly people who were always working in conjunction with Solomon, the women of his harem, to convince her to be one of them. Now, she charges them one, one last time for the third time to stop trying to stir up illicit desire in her for Solomon. Now, she won her battle with temptation and only longed to be joined to her beloved shepherd, as do we. Amen? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, the closing paragraphs can be divided into three sections. We have the Shulamite and her beloved in verses 5 through 7, chapter 8. We have the Shulamite and her brothers, verses 8 through 12. We have the Shulamite and her betrothed in verses 13 through 14. Then we're done. Now, the first voice to be heard in verse 5 is the voice of the companions of the shepherd, uh, the buddies of the shepherd, that we would call the best men, who are the friends of the bridegroom. And in verse 5, it's them talking, and they say, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Now, what has happened here? At long last, the two are together. We're not told when or how it happened, how the shepherd secured the release of his bride from the perfume prison of Solomon's pavilion. We don't know. We don't need to know. We just know all of a sudden she's out of there and she's with him and they're coming home. You get the picture, don't you, church? If you don't, here we go. She was there one moment and the next moment she was gone. All we know is the miracle had taken place. The shepherd had come, the shackles were broken, and she was with her shepherd at last. Now, you have to believe what I do about the Word of God. The Bible is not a book of good ideas. It's not a book of neat wisdom, one among many. It's not a book composed by men that contains some of the words of God. The Bible, every word in the original language, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when I read my Bible, I get excited right off the bat. Matter of fact, my favorite time of day is to get out there in the morning immediately and get into that Word. Because I know I'm approaching a book where there is none other other like it in the whole earth. There's not another book like the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's breathed out of the very breath of God. So if I know I'm approaching a book that came directly from heaven to me, then I expect that thing to jump out and speak to me, to to minister to me, to change me, to rearrange me. God did not put me here to judge his book. He put his book here to judge me. So when I see what's happening here, that this Shulamite is suddenly delivered, suddenly snatched out of Solomon's pavilion, and the, bride, uh, the, the, the friends of the bridegroom, of the shepherd, see them coming, and we know that there has been a deliverance from that place which represented the world, then we've got a perfect picture of the rapture of the church. 
He and his friends joined in the joy and the rejoicing of the reuniting of the bride and the groom. And this is exactly how it shall be with us. Oh, catch this, church. If this doesn't stir you, you're not saved. I'm smiling. Don't look at me so serious. Maybe I'm not saved. Don't do that. I'm just, all right? This is exactly how it shall be with us. One moment we're going to be here on earth, and the next moment we'll find ourselves staring, staring at our long-for shepherd face to face. As John wrote, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We do know this, that when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All right, this is the rapture of the church, perfect picture of the rapture of the church. The church is going to be gone in a flash. And this poor wretched earth, I feel sorry for all the inhabitants that remain. You know why? Because it will suddenly be bereft of its salt, its light, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, its nobility. Because the Bible says, the Bible paints a picture of what the character of men is going to be like before Christ returns. And it's nasty, ugly, difficult, murderous, hateful, lustful, covetous, betrayers. I mean, you can read the laundry list. So when, when the salt and the light are taken away and the nobility, why do I say nobility? Because the real character that is on the earth before he comes is going to be the character of Christ formed in his people. So when it's taken out, the nobility is gone. The restraint is gone. No more salt to, to put off decay, to restrain decay. No more light to shine into the dark. No more character to stand up and say, what in the world are you doing? Next, we find the shepherd and the Shulamite communing together. And they're walking along. Now, she's out of there. And they're walking along. What a, what a scene of relief and joy and fulfillment. They're walking. They are now out of Solomon's prison. And they start talking, communing together. And the first thing they talk about is what they remembered. Verse 5, second part of the verse. I awakened you. Now, this is the, the shepherd talking. I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. What does that mean? The shepherd is reminiscing on the time and the place where their love began. What did he say? I awakened you under the apple tree. He said, that's where the love began. That's where love was sparked. Under the apple, beautiful romantic setting. And then he equates love with life. That's when life began. He says, there your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. What he's saying is, you being born into the world, the love that sparked between us was just as eventful. Love is like life in that it brings forth something new. Love is like life. Listen, I, I believe if you hadn't loved, you haven't lived. I'm going to say that again. If you haven't loved, you have not lived. You have existed. God didn't wire anything else in his creation to love 
but human beings, the way that we can love. I think if you haven't loved God, you haven't lived. If you, that's vertical. And if you haven't loved horizontally, you haven't lived. You say, well, love hurt me, Pastor Jeff. Well, we're about to see that love is stronger than death. It's also important for us to remember as Christians when our life with him began. He says, I, I, let me talk to you. Let me talk to you, sweetheart. Do you remember when our love was first sparked and they go remembering, reminiscing back? The message for me and us is we need to remember back when love was sparked between us and the great shepherd. Do you remember? Do you remember when you fell in love with Jesus? I do. I was stunned that it could even happen. I was stunned that I could love someone I'd never seen. As the, the Bible says, having not seen him yet, we love him. How can you love something you haven't seen? How can you love somebody you haven't seen? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you, you love him who you haven't seen. We, I, I think we need to go back sometimes and remember that first spark under whatever our apple tree was. I was in jail. <laughs> Some apple tree. 16 years old. But that's where I met Jesus. And and I can go back to that spark of divinity when it touched my heart. And that, that's what he's doing. He's taking her back. So they're walking along and they're reminiscing. And, and, and as they do this, we always have to keep in mind why the Holy Ghost gave us this book. Because it's a picture of Christ and his church. So is it possible Jesus says to you and to me, let's go back and reminisce a minute. Do you remember your own apple tree when he touched you? How many of you remember? Amen. And wasn't that wonderful? And the Bible says, don't ever lose that first love. Now, it's good to occasionally go back into the past to remember your spiritual birthday. I have two birthdays, June 22nd, and I don't know the other one exact date, but it was the day that I was born twice. And that's my second birthday. Now, then they recall what they had relished. Well, what did they relish? First, they had relished love's seal. Look at verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm. What does that mean? This might also be rendered, wear me as a seal close to your heart. Wear me like a ring upon your hand. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, hey, you could pull so many Hallmark cards from the Song of Solomon. I mean, they're endless. And boy, I'll tell you, if us guys could even talk half this good, wouldn't the women be happy? Can you imagine saying to your, honey, wear me as a seal close to you. As you're walking out the door to go to work today, wear me as a seal close to your heart. Wear me like a ring upon, you're not going to get out that door. <laughs> now the seal spoken of, was a signet ring, okay, that in olden days was regarded as the actual signature of the owner. The signet ring is a ring they would wear that, that they would push down into melted wax and leave their, their seal, okay? I, I've had one of those before when I was a kid. I thought it was really cool, Superman or something like that. But you, with melted wax, you push that seal down in with the ring and it left an imprint. It left your insignia. That's the seal he's talking about. In Bible days, the signature ring actually stood for the person 
who wore it. It represented the person that wore it. Like our visa represents us, the signet ring stood for the person who wore it. The imprint left by the ring was used to make contracts binding. And they were also a symbol of ownership. So what is, what is he saying here? He's saying, I want you to, 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 to wear me like a ring because guess what? I am yours and you are mine. Now, let me tell you something about it. As you go through this earth, you go through your workaday world every day. Tomorrow, you're going to be there again. You know what the Lord wants you to do? Wear him like a ring. Wear him like a ring. You know why? Because you're his. You're not as his when he comes again or when you die. You're his right now exclusively. It is exclusive. So, so wear him like a signet ring. I'm going to go back to that. Set me as a seal upon your heart when you go out the door. As a seal upon your arm. Wear me as a seal close to your heart. Wear me like I own you because I do. The signet ring, again, bringing it to the church now, the signet ring the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his earthly bride is the Holy Spirit. When you and I got saved, he put his seal on us. Let, let, let me read it to you. It's the mark of ownership. It says in Ephesians 1, verse 13, you were, read it with me, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you know what he's got on you? The mark of ownership. And he, and, and, and he wears you like he owns you, and you wear him like you own him. We were sealed with that precious Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. If any man has not the Spirit of God, he is not the Lord's. That is the difference between saved and lost. Those who are saved have been forgiven of their sins, and they have the mark of ownership, the seal of the Holy Spirit in them, within them, living in them. And the lost man, the lost woman, are totally bereft of the Holy Spirit within them. What a horrible thought. What a terrible thought. But it's true. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, they are none of his. Paul wrote. Okay? So this is huge, incredible uh, uh, symbology and typology here. So then, the shepherd and the Shulamite relished love's seal. But they also relished love's strength. Look what they say about love. Love is as strong as death. Can we say that together? Love is as strong as as death. Well, death is pretty strong. The believer has many enemies in life, but the last and worst is death. Death is man's enemy. And Hebrews tells us that most people on earth live in dread fear of death all their lives long. I personally have a little conviction about this. I believe one of the reasons people go to drugs and alcohol and immorality and different escape mechanisms they choose in life is because they cannot handle the reality that one day they will die. I think it's an escape hatch from fear. And we try to drown out the reality. And the older you get, the more it begins to creep up on you that you are mortal. You are not immortal. Everybody's body will die. And the lost man who has no concept of eternity, no concept of God, 
no hope for the future, cannot handle that thought. And it begins to work a number on them the older they become. The Bible says death is an enemy. But love is strong as death. Stronger, in fact, than death is love. Look what Romans 8 says in verse 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, there's death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. He has exhausted all possible adjectives, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you know Jesus, death can't separate you. The devil can't separate you. The flesh can't separate you. Trials can't separate you. Valleys can't separate you. Sickness can't separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's powerful. So in that respect, love, his love, is stronger than death. If death is strong, so is love. For love, he said to her, hey, dear, love, hey, do you realize that now we've been through all this and here we are walking along together and we have overcome? Do you see that love is as strong as death? Because it almost came to death, this trial we're just now coming out of. We see next what they realized as they walked along. They realized they had a powerful foe. The Shulamite had spurned Solomon, strongest, most powerful man on the face of the earth. She had spurned his advances, his flatteries, and all of his promises and offers, and she had offended him. She had triumphed over him, but he was still out there, still threatening, still to be watched for. And as the two walked hand in hand, they talked about the vindictiveness they expected. And I want you to catch this because it's so true of us today. Look what they said in verse 6. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. What are they saying? Though the Shulamite was now saved from Solomon's clutches, envy and jealousy could yet raise their ugly heads through him. Because he was a spurned, you talk about a spurned woman, he was a spurned man. And he could do a lot because he was so powerful. That's where that verse comes from. They're discussing the possibility that jealousy and envy could, could rear their ugly heads and come at them. Jealousy is the white-hot emotion of hell. Solomon wrote about this tormenting emotion in the Proverbs as if he knew all about it real well. Look at what he said about jealousy. There we go. Anger is cruel, and wrath is like a flood. But jealousy is even more dangerous. Another version says, who can stand before jealousy? Anybody ever encountered somebody jealous? Oh, man. There's nothing like jealousy. I'd rather face a lot of things than a really jealous person because they, they, they sit in the shadows. Their eyes are filled with envy and jealousy over what you've got or what you've done or what you've accomplished, and, and they hate you for it. A lot of you have been attacked by jealousy and never knew that's what it was. In the office place and other places, little arrows were shot at you, and you didn't know where they came from or why they came at you. Truth be known, behind uh, closed doors, 
back in the inner regions of that office place, somebody got jealous of you. I, I watch forensic files all the time. It's the one thing I like to watch. I don't know if you watch them. Forensic Files, Dateline ID, I love real true crime shows because it constantly confirms to me God's world and God's justice. But man, do you know how many murders you see from people who were jealous? How much pain and heartache and tragedy are wrought because somebody was jealous? And, and, And what they are capable of because they were jealous? Oh man, jealousy is more dangerous than anger and wrath. I, I really believe this. I've often thought that one of the motivating factors in Satan's attack against the church is jealousy. Well, Pastor Jeff, aren't you kind of humanizing Satan? Satan has emotions. We know he does. It says he, he has fallen from heaven and his, his, his anger is hot because he knows his time is short. So we know that he can be angry. We know that he can be filled with pride. That was the first sin. He became prideful and tried to exalt himself against God. We know that he has fear. We know that he has all kinds of emotions. So yes, I do believe that Satan gets jealous of the church. Why? Well, we enjoy so much of what he once had, but, we, but he can no longer enjoy it. Worship of God. He, he used to be the prince worshiper, the chief worshiper. Uh, the presence of his spirit. Satan dwelt in the presence of God when he was Lucifer. Fellowship with the Lord, he has, no longer has that deep peace. That's gone. And guess what? Most of all, the anticipation of eternity and glory. He has no anticipation of anything but eternity in hell. So I believe he's jealous of the redeemed of the Lord. And, and that's one of the motivations he has to attack the really blessed and the really godly and, and those that really love the Lord. See, see, Solomon was so angry because the Shulamite had such love for the shepherd. He wanted that love and he couldn't get it. The Shulamite and the shepherd, however, didn't dwell long on Solomon's possible vindic- vindictiveness. And, and they, they said, let's don't dwell on negatives. Let's dwell on positives. They moved on to discuss the victory that they experienced Here it is. Many waters cannot quench love. Can we say that together? Many waters cannot quench love. Love is so powerful. Our world celebrates the power of hate. Do you realize the seething cauldron of hate that our world is right now? You look over there in the Middle East. You look at all the killing, the mayhem, the torture, the slaughter, the mass shootings, constantly. You look at that, and you got to remember the words of Jesus as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? Genesis tells us the earth was filled with violence. So violence is only going to increase. But i got to tell you, there's something stronger than hate, and it's love, God's love. Many waters can't quench it, nor can the floods drown it. He goes on, if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. In other words, I wouldn't give you my love for everything in my house. You've got to be kidding me. I'm going to keep my love. They knew in their heart that whatever Solomon may try, 
He could never quench their love for each other. Love is so valuable that its price is far above all the wealth of your house. You know, there's a lot of people living great big square footage homes with satin sheets and they can't sleep in them at night. And they are living in a house of pain and a house of emptiness and a house of of woulda, coulda, shoulda. I wish it were different. There's no love. There's no affection. There's no nothing. I, it feels like a little tiny doghouse to me because it's not happy. But if you've got love in the house, you can be living in a little bitty doghouse and feel like you're in a mansion. That's the message here. Consider for a minute the mammoth attack Satan made against our great shepherd's love for us. You want to talk about many waters cannot quench love? Look at what came at Jesus. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And his son was an expression of his love. And look at what came against that love that was directed towards you and me. All the way to the cross. Through its terror, through its pain, its darkness, its horror, the jeering crowds, the mocking soldiers, our Lord's love for us remained steadfast. It never waned. Many waters could not quench his love. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for that? What a Savior. Can we just say together, what a Savior. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. What a Savior. Amen. Many waters could not quench his love. Now, the closing verses of the song are occupied with the Shulamite. Now, we've seen her beloved in verses 5 through 7 as they commune together. Trials and tempta- uh, temptations were over. Let's pause now. I want to take a good look at the Shulamite's brothers. And this is going to be the third and the last time they appear. They've already appeared twice. Let me show you where. Looking back, the first time we met them, they were repressing the Shulamite. You remember that? They didn't like the shepherd. Her brothers did not like her relationship with the shepherd. They did not like it. So they took her out of the field and they put her into a vineyard to keep her away from him. And we talked about how the enemy uses sometimes people to try to come in between us and the shepherd. Sometimes it's family members. Those of your own household will be your greatest enemies, Jesus warned. Because they don't get saved with you, they're never going to understand your preference for and love for the shepherd. And a lot of times they will try to get in between you and him and get you out of this nutty fanaticism you've got involved in. So these brothers, the first time we see them, they are repressing their little sister. They were harsh with her. They did all they could to separate her from the shepherd. They made her a keeper of the vineyards. Now, the second time we see them, they ridicule her. Sounds like me and my sisters. I I was tough on my sisters. I could tell you stories, but you wouldn't come back to church. And it's not that bad. I had three little sisters, and I was the firstborn and only boy. So I understand the ridiculing of the sisters, but watch this. The second time we see these brothers, they're ridiculing her. Look what they said. Take us the foxes, sis, the little foxes that spoil the grapes. What does that mean? 
Well, foxes are noted for being crafty and cunning. Now, while working in the vineyards where they had placed her, how could they have possibly expected this little girl, this young lady, to catch on her own the crafty foxes that were spoiling the grapes? They were making fun of her. Hey, sis, see, see you're working hard in the vineyard. Why don't you catch a few of those foxes that are spoiling the grapes? Yuck, yuck, yuck. You get that? I'm trying over here. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Okay. That would be dangerous for a man because foxes will bite you. They're rabid a lot of the time. You, you don't go. But, but to tell her to do it was making fun. They were sneering at their younger sister, poking fun at her, taunting her is what they were doing. They got her away from the shepherd, got her in this vineyard. Now, sis, take care of the foxes that are always in here trying to spoil the grapes. Ha, 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 ha. We got you. We win. But now the third meeting, we see a change in them. This time they respected her. In verse 8, the scene opens with the brothers talking to each other about her. Well, there's our sister. She's been in Solomon's pavilion, and they're having a conversation about her. First thing they do is they make an assessment. Verse 8, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? You know what's going on here? Notice they call her little sister. But she's no longer a little sister. They're viewing her as immature. She has no breath. She's immature. She's not developed. That's how they're seeing her. They were struggling with the fact that their little sister had grown up. You know, I went to Quitman Sunday night. Quitman. Quitman. 1,800 total population. And we built a church of 500 people there. It's kind of neat. But watch this. I go to equipment, and, and like I told you, I, I see these, these young ladies who I dedicated as children. And it took me a while for my brain to connect. This is who I held in my arms and dedicated. And now she's all grown up. But they were struggling with, wow, she's really no longer our little sister. She has come into her own. And you know what? People view the church the same way. In many ways, we're still immature. We are that little church on the other side of the tracks. We don't count for much out there in this culture. And I might add, to their own demise. None out of the church is no big deal. Unless the church agrees with us and conforms with the way we see things, then they are backward, they are insignificant, they are inconsequential, they marginalize us and diminish us. And yet, let me tell you something. And, and they go on and call us all kinds of wonderful names. I hear it all the time. Narrow, right-wing extremist, homophobic, racist, all these names they call the church. And, and they have no reason to say it except that's the way they have always been taught the church was. But I got news for you. Just as the fiery oven of temptation and trial turned the Shulamite from a girl into a woman, 
so will the church of the last days be brought into adulthood through trials, fiery tests, persecutions, and temptations, and it's happening right now. The church is about to grow up. We're about to see a separation of the sheep from the goats. The church is about to grow up. The real blood-bought, redeemed, spirit-filled church of the Lord Jesus Christ is about to grow up because we're about to take some heat for being a Christian. We're about to take some heat for loving the great shepherd. We're about to be persecuted and, and already are being and criticized for walking with God and rejecting the views of the world. But that's all right. As those attacks made her from a girl to a woman, it's going to bring the church of the Lord Jesus Christ into manhood and womanhood before Jesus comes again. It's happening right now. So this was the brothers' assessment of the Shulamite. But next we see what they proposed, and their proposal is powerful. I want you to catch this. They propose, their proposal hinges on two things. Their first proposal is summarized by the symbol of a wall. The other proposal is symbolized by a door. Now, here's what they say. This is the brothers talking. Verse 9, if she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. A wall is primarily a symbol of invincibility. What they were asking is very blunt. You know, when you think about the Old Testament, they always had that great big, huge wall around the cities. It was to keep intruders out. It was to keep the city safe. It was a sign of safety and security. They made walls so huge. You could run several chariots of horses along the tops of those walls without them falling off. Huge, invincible walls. So that's what these brothers are thinking about. Here's what they were asking. How had she behaved herself in Solomon's palace? Was she a wall? Had she maintained her purity? Had she been a wall? And here's what they're actually proposing. If, if they found that she had stayed pure, they were going to honor her and crown her with silver. But then they asked the next question. And if she is a door, verse 9, if she is a door, what will they do with her? Read it with me. We will enclose her. Anybody in here like being enclosed? No. So this is negative, isn't it? If she was a door, then we're not going to honor her with silver. We're going to enclose her. Now, a door is primarily a symbol of invitation. You know, on doors we have welcome, welcome. An open door says, come on in. Had she been open to Solomon's proposals, what they want to know is, had she been easy? If so... Then they proposed a prison of boards of cedar. Negative. Now I want you to take this right. Listen to me, church. The world will lie to you all day long about immorality, about sexual sin. You know, there are churches that won't even talk about sin. To me, that's like a doctor saying, welcome, I I'm Dr. Joe. Now, we don't talk about sickness here. And if I find, you know, anything bad in these x-rays, we just don't talk about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm out of that doctor. I want somebody who will look at me and say, you're sick. 
and here's what you need to get well. But we have well-known pastors who say now, and I say pastors in quotes, well, we don't even talk about sin. Well, then you're not a pastor. You're not a preacher. You're not a Bible person. Because the, the whole problem with this world we live in is S-I-N. And, and the wages of sin are death, enclosement, prison, bondage. That's the message here. The Bible's not pun- pulling any punches here. Okay? If she was a door, then it's going to lead to some negative consequences. If she was a wall, then she's going to come into honor. And that's true in life. I don't care how the world paints it. I don't care what this immoral culture says to you. They're lying to you. If you only knew what they were experiencing behind their own closed doors as they're reaping the consequences of their own lifestyle, but the media will never tell you about that. They'll just lie to you. People Magazine, all these idiot gossip magazines, these stupid sewage I, always, I hate going through the grocery store. You know, with Kathy down, I've had to do some grocery shopping. And I'm stuck looking at these National Enquirer and Globe and all these, and these gossip-monging, sewage, bottom-dwelling magazines that the world feeds on, this muck and mire and junk and garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. The fact is, this is showing us that If she maintained herself, there would be a reward. If she didn't, there would be negative consequences. Now, and let me just read. In other words, if she had shamed herself, she'd have to pay the penalty. Never again would she be free to choose her path in life freely. The whole scene was sort of a judgment seat for their sister. So, too, there will be a judgment seat of Christ for us, the church. Now, while no one there will be exiled to hell there will be both gain and loss at the judgment seat of Christ. You do know that, right? You do know there's two different judgments. Great white throne judgment, and, and way back in the end of the book of Revelations, talks about every person who has ever lived will be resurrected from their grave and brought before God, and the books will be opened, and the book of life will be opened, and if your name is not in the book of life, you will be cast into hell. That's the great white throne judgment, and no Christian believer is going to be there. The judgment seat of Christ is talked about in 1 Corinthians 3. And Paul says, we won't be judged for sin because our sin has been washed away. But we will receive rewards or loss of reward for what we did in our bodies, for how we obeyed God, for how much we lived for him. There's various crowns, crown of the soul winner, And that's another whole message, many different crowns. But here's the deal. While nobody's going to be exiled to hell, there's going to be gain and loss depending on the deeds of our life. So here in this book, we have, again, another picture of what really is coming in reality. Now, next, the Shulamite answers the charge. She says, I'm a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. She's saying, I'm no little sister. Quit talking to me that way. I'm fully mature. I am mighty. I am mature. 
I am marriageable. I am woman, hear me roar. I had to say that. I had to say that. It was just right there. <laughs> okay. We'll delete that when it goes on radio. She could look her brothers in the eye and assert her purity. And her beloved was satisfied with her answer. Way to go, girl. Now, next we see her triumph as we come to the close. She says, verse 11 and 12, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. Let me help this make sense to you. We could loosely paraphrase this. Solomon, you are welcome to your silver. Welcome to your fruit, you keepers. She says, I don't care about your silver. I don't care about your vineyard. She's saying to her enemy, keep it. There's nothing you've got that I want. And that's the way we talk to the enemy. You take a good hard look at all of his prosperity and power, all that the enemy seems to be giving people in our day. Look well at all that he has to offer and say, say it with me, everybody, real good and loud. Keep it. Let's try it one more time. Keep it. Doesn't that feel good? We got to do it once more for three. Keep it. Because there's nothing you've got, devil, that I want or need. What Satan has to offer is never sufficient. It always falls short of expectations. God has engineered the human soul for himself. And nothing else will do. I'm telling you, nothing. Because she never lost sight of the shepherd. Here was her key. Because she never lost sight of the shepherd in her innermost heart. She had been able to keep the world in proper focus. Church, hear me. If you, if you could talk to my staff, they will tell you I'm a broken record in staff meeting because I end it often but with saying, never drift from your devotional time. Keep your devotional time alive every day. Every day, get with the shepherd. Open up that Bible and let it talk to you. Give him your troubles and your cares. Don't turn on the TV before you open the Word. Get into a prayer closet or go outside or wherever your place is you get with God and spend time with Him every day. That way you look at the world accurately. She won over Solomon, the richest, most appealing worldly man of his day because she kept her relationship with the shepherd intact. Note the shepherd's last request. He says in verse 13, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Notice the story appropriately ends in a garden. Paradise has been regained. The shepherd used a word for dwell right there. You who dwell in the garden, he's talking to her. The word that he used for dwell literally means to abide permanently. Never again would the Shulamite be in peril from the world or its prince. The shepherd only wanted to hear her voice. 
Others have heard your voice. Now let me hear it. Then comes the Shulamite's last reply. And here's the end of the book. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. No longer is she talking about the mountains of separation like she did earlier in the book. These were the mountains of spices. She's saying, I want you. Let nothing come between us now and forevermore. And what does our shepherd want us to say? I want us to stand up and say it together. Can we? She, our shepherd wants us to say the same thing. So let's say it together. Lord Jesus, come. Come in all your glory and boundless life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The love song ends where the book of Revelation ends. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We're done. Let's give the Lord a hand for this marvelous book. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, can we just lift our hands to the great shepherd of the sheep? Lord, thank you for this incredible story inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Shulamite, a picture of a victorious church. Lord, help us to learn from her how she defeated the tempter, how she kept herself undefiled from the world, how she kept her communication with you alive and well, how she emerged from Solomon's courts unscathed with her shepherd and on into glory. Thank you, Lord, as her deliverance from the pavilion of Solomon came suddenly, so will ours. And until that great day when the trumpet blows, help us to walk with you. And we say again, even so, come, Lord. Jesus.